Wow. Man. I have a lot to say today. And if you would just allow me, I'm just going to take my time because where we're at today is such an important topic um, in, with regard to church leadership. So I, I just really want to take my time today. I, we're in our third week of our series called to lead, and, and uh, it's really the call of the universal church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, to, to be who God has created us to be, to lead the charge to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a call also to the local church to, to answer the call that God has on us as a local church to, to, to influence the communities that God has called us to. And to do that, we've covered over the last couple of weeks, it's going to take in our church strong, sustainable leadership. And we understand that leadership that will govern us into the future, and I'd even say this, long after I'm gone. And so to that end, we are going to ordain elders, I mentioned it earlier, that will lead our church going forward and govern our church. And I'm excited about that. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll pick up where we left off, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now I am going to tell you that, you know, um, I've always been one to tell you to bring your Bibles with you, all right, today. I hope you have your Bibles with you. How many of you have your Bibles with you? Let me see your hands. Nice, because only the scripture passage is going to be on the screen, not the text, just where you go to find it. So we will be turning and learning. Everybody say turning and learning. That's what we're going to be doing today. All right. First Timothy chapter three, beginning at verse one, it says it is a trustworthy of the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now, implicit in this statement that he desires a noble task and must be the husband of one wife is the call to men to lead and govern the church. But what I want to be clear on today is that this does not imply that women cannot lead in the church. It doesn't imply that at all. And so I want to be clear. I want to, I, want, I want to make sure that we understand that when God created man and woman, he created us as co-equals. The Bible says God created man and woman, male and female. He created he, them, and he gave us equal authority to rule as co-heirs of righteousness, equal authority, all right? So a man is not superior in the body of Christ to a woman. Everybody say amen. amen. I, I, I at least figured I would get an amen from the women. Yes. Nice. Here's what we believe in our church. We believe that a woman can lead in any capacity in this church. A woman can be a pastor, she can be a director, um, she, can, she can lead ministry, um, she can teach in the church. We believe that in our church a woman can lead in any capacity except for the office of an elder. We believe the Bible is clear that the office of an elder is reserved for men. 
And so today before you leave, I'm going to give you at least one biblical reason why that is. Okay? To do this, though, I want to take you on a little journey. We're going to have to go back to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to pay close attention as we navigate through chapter 2 and pay specific focus on the section that deals with women in leadership in the church. Okay? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you a synopsis of what Paul was, was doing here. He was instructing the church on, on what it should be focused on as a church, instructing the church. And he's telling the church, he says, I want you to be mindful, church, to always pray and intercede for people, especially those who are leading, those who are rulers, kings, and the, and the like. And he says, learn to be thankful. Be thankful for what you have. Be thankful every day for who's with you, who's around you, and who's governing you. He says, lead peaceable and, and godly and dignified lives. And understand that everything that we were created for can be found in the gospel. So live out the gospel of Christ in a way that pleases God. And, 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 and what I want you to understand, church, too, is that there is only one that can mediate all things. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is our great mediator. It's verses 1 through 7. And then verse 8, Paul, Paul narrows his focus now down to men. And he says, he says, men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your hands up. I want you to lift up holy hands. And I want you to live in, in deference to one another. I don't want you to compete or argue or quarrel or, or strive. I don't want you to do that. And I want you to understand that, that none of us were destined for greatness at the expense of another. That's what Paul is saying here. And then verse 9, Paul shifts his focus from, from men to women. And, and, and in verse 9 and following, all the way through the rest of this chapter, Paul focuses on the role of women in the church. Summarize verse 9 and 10, Paul's instruction to the women of the churches. He says, listen, Quit competing with each other. He says, stop, stop competing with each other. He says, don't be so worried about what the other person is doing. Don't be so worried about how you look on the outside. Focus on what's taking place on the inside. Focus on the things that will transform you more and more into, into a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, don't, don't, don't be concerned. Don't be competing with each other. You know, I come out of a, out of a church, man, and um, I got to tell you, in the black church, Sunday morning is like a fashion show. It really is. I mean, I, I, know, I know guys that, that they would have the wingtip shoes. You know what wingtip shoes are? They have the dots in, in the top. I know guys that would put on a suit, and they would take a pen and paint the, the dots in the shoe the color of the suit that they had on so they would match. You guys look shocked. It's true. I'm telling you it's true. You'd walk into the church and, and you'd have, up in the front, you'd have the mother's board. And the mother's board, you'd have these, these women with these big hats. Some of them would have tassels hanging down. Some would have feathers. Some would have them cooked to the side a little bit, you know. It was, it was, it was about, it was about, 
looking good, often at the expense of paying attention to what was really going on on the inside. And so Paul is saying, listen, I want, I want you to, to be concerned about the, uh, the outward appearance, but not to the degree where you're posturing against each other, where you're jockeying against each other, where you're too concerned about what the other person looks like. And that becomes the basis of your dealings with each other. He says, quit competing with each other. That's the point here. And then the next four verses of this passage are key. They're very important. They're, they're highly controversial. And so when discussing the roles of men and women in the church, I think that we have to go back and take a look at these verses. It's important that we view them. And not just because they lead right into the qualifications of an elder found in chapter 3, but because I believe they clearly speak to why God has called men to govern the church. Now, I'm going to say up front to you, this is a difficult passage. It's highly controversial. I think it's, it's been abused historically, and it's been used to limit and, and degrade and, and even devalue the role of women in leadership, both in the church and in the home. But I believe when taken in context, this scripture places an incomparable value on the role of women as leaders. And so it's my goal today to teach this passage to you without offending anyone, uh, in a way that honors God, in a way that honors the women who lead both in the home and in the church, and in a way that it offers both a high invitation and high challenge to the men in the church to step up and lead. So that said, let me begin at verse 11 of chapter 2 and following. We'll read through verse 14. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I just feel the hackle stand up on some of y'all, back of y'all head. Hang with me, ladies. We're going to get there, all right? She's remained quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Hmm. When I read this passage of scripture in its context, three, surface, three questions surface in my mind. And here they are. First, what does it mean when it says a woman's learning must be done in silence? Second, what exactly is prohibited in verse 12 of this text? And then third, why? Why is this text presented and why is it written? Why does Paul address this? I want to address these one at a time. First, what does it mean when it says that a woman's learning must be done in quietness and all submission? Here's what I want you to understand. This statement that Paul is making would have shocked the first century readers. They'd have been shocked. Why? Because for someone to even imply that a woman should learn was beyond the norm of their culture. See, prior to Jesus coming and, and prior to the formation of the church, women weren't even allowed to study scripture. Priests and rabbis often wouldn't even allow a woman to touch them. 
They would refuse often to even speak to women. Women were confined to the outer courts of the synagogue, and therefore they couldn't even offer up sacrifices for themselves. It was often in this culture when, when Paul wrote this text that a woman would be considered even less than an animal. And so along comes Jesus, and immediately he challenges this thinking. And he begins to reform the roles of men and women. And so Jesus comes along, and the first thing he does is he teaches women. He taught women. He included them in ministry. He spoke to them on many occasions, even at the expense and ridicule of the religious leaders of his day. Scripture tells us that he was anointed for burial by a woman. Jesus honored women. He depended on them. He trusted them. The Apostle Paul did the same. And so when Paul wrote this passage, it wasn't meant to be chauvinistic, but it was designed to liberate the women in, in this culture that they lived in. Hmm. Honoring women. The second reason is that the Greek word here for quiet is used twice in this passage, once in, in verse 11 and then again in verse 12. And in both cases, it refers to, to a tranquil and, and peaceable and, and, and um, uh, quiet, if you will, posture of spirit, not one that's argumentative. It refers to a person that's not easily upset refers to a person that, that doesn't quarrel very often or, or you don't find them fighting over things needlessly. It's a posture of, of deference one to another. It's an attitude of quietness that respects the teachers and the leaders of the church. And, and here's the key. This should be the attitude, when Paul wrote this, this should have been the attitude of all, of all learners, both men and women. It should have been. And it should be the attitude that we have today, right? It should be. And so it begs the question, why does Paul direct this passage to women in this time? Here's why. It appears that the primary target of, of the false leaders of their day, the ones that had infiltrated the, the church in Ephesus, were women. Women were their primary target. And apparently, they were teaching things like forbidding marriage. And they were teaching uh, that a woman's value was diminished somehow if she wanted children, if she desired to have children. This, this teaching encouraged gossip and, and slander and aggression towards each other and towards their husbands. And so it appears that, that the women in this church were being targeted. And so I believe Paul here in his teaching is countering this, this teaching, this false teaching with truth. So he's teaching them to honor and respect and be in submission and deference to one another. That's what verse 11 is implying here. So what exactly is prohibited family in verse 12? Where, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that a woman can't teach. There are plenty of examples in Scripture where not only did women teach, but they taught very well. 
For example, if you turn to Titus chapter 2, just flip over to the right just a little bit. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, Paul instructs the older women. He says, listen, teach the younger women what is good. He says, train them what is good. And, and listen, train them how to love their husbands. This, was, this, this passage was an eye-opener for me when I saw that. I had never seen in Scripture where the Bible said that, that a woman should be trained to love her husband. I'd always seen that, that a man was to love his wife and a woman was to respect her husband. But this passage specifically says for the older women to train the younger women how to love their husband and their children. It says to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, in submission to their own husbands. Why? So that there'll be no reproach against the word of God. So this passage here is not teaching, this verse doesn't teach that a woman can't teach. It doesn't mean that. Second, it doesn't mean that a woman can't teach a man. If you flip back over to, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, you'll find that, that Timothy's primary teachers were his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. That as Timothy was, was coming up as a young man, these women taught him and instilled in him the principles of manhood, the things that he needed to know, not only to be a, a godly follower of Jesus, but a, but a man. So it doesn't mean that a woman can't teach a man. And I'd say this, today there are some outstanding teachers that are women. There are women that are better teachers than men. I've been in seminars and, and conferences where I've sat under the teaching of some great women that have impacted my life in the church with their teaching. So women teaching in the church is not the point here, family. Third, it doesn't mean that a woman can't challenge men with regard to Scripture and the teaching of Scripture. If you flip over to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 26, you find the story of Apollos as he had gone into the temple in Ephesus and he was teaching the baptism of John. Scripture tells us that Aquila and his wife Priscilla, after hearing what Apollos was teaching, went up to him and said, hey man, you know, we need to take you to lunch because we want to teach you a clearer understanding of the gospel. And so they, they pulled Apollos aside and taught Apollos the gospel of Jesus. And it changed his teaching. See, so it doesn't mean that a woman can't challenge men on the teaching of Scripture. Hmm. And I also want you to know this, notice this. I want you to notice that it does not say, I do not permit a woman to teach men, period. It doesn't say that. So we have to take together what Paul is saying. We have to combine the sentence, what he's saying, with the next statement. He says, I, I don't, he says, I don't forbid a woman to teach unless that teaching is an exercise of authority over men. See, the word exercise authority in the Greek here literally is translated to authenticate or to authorize. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, I do not permit a woman to authenticate or authorize teaching of the doctrine in the church. And here's why. He says, I want that to be reserved as a responsibility for men. So then, who is responsible to authenticate the teaching of doctrine in the church? 
Scripture tells us that this responsibility is reserved for an elder. And that an elder has two responsibilities. One is to govern the church and shepherd the body of Christ, the family. And the other is to teach and guard the integrity of Scripture and the doctrine of the church. Listen to me. This is key. Because, because to, to be the guardians of, of the doctrine and to be the spiritual overseers are the, precisely the two things that Paul is forbidding for women in this passage. And I don't believe it's by accident. I believe it's on purpose. I believe that God has done this for a reason. Hmm. And so the point isn't whether or not we like what Scripture says here. Does Scripture say this? And it does. And so it begs the question, family, why? Why? I believe 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 presents a biblical concept of leadership that appeals to the origin of God's creative order. And to find what that is and to see what that's all about, we need to flip back to Genesis chapter 2. Go with me there. Genesis chapter 2. Are you there? Drop down to verse 18. Oh, excuse me, verse 15. Verse 15. I'm reading out of the ESV, so it might look a little different than yours. And the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Then what does God say? He says, Then the Lord said, It's not good for man to be alone, so I will make a, a helper, a support for him that is suitable for him. Hmm. So I'm going to make you someone that that is that is a helper that's compatible to you that is suitable for you so listen man was created first before woman so he bears the primary responsibility for everything he's given charge and he's given the care to carefully guard everything that God had placed in his care and then he's given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's given the command. And then if you drop down to verse 22, it says that a woman was fashioned to be his helper, to be his companion. And so because a woman was formed after the man, God holds the man primarily responsible for sin. Hmm. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to summarize this for you. Eve is in the garden with Adam. She's standing there, and the serpent. The Bible says, Scripture says, that the serpent was more crafty than any of God's creation. So Eve is standing there, and, and the serpent says to her, did not God command you to, let me read it. 
Did not God actually say to you not to eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? And the woman responds, she says, no. She says, listen, God didn't say that we couldn't eat of any tree. He said that we couldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because, and we can't even touch it, she said. Because the day that we do, we will surely die. Listen to what the serpent says. You shall not surely die. Because God knows that on the day that you eat of the fruit, that you, you'll become like him. You'll have, you'll have knowledge like him. God is holding out on your things that he doesn't want you to have. Your eyes will be open. Now listen to what verse 6 says. Hmm. It says, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, watch this now, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and they ate. The, her husband was with her. God, God had given Adam the command not to eat the tree, and it passed the responsibility on to Adam to make sure that his wife understood the grave consequences of disobedience. But yet, as the snake is talking to his woman, he's standing there passively by. He watches his wife take the fruit. She eats it, and then she turns and gives it to him. Don't miss this now. He's standing right there. And he has the responsibility. And so, Scripture says that woman was deceived but here's what I want you to hear. Even though woman was deceived, man was responsible. And so when God came looking for an answer, he came to man. He said, Adam, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Adam? Where are you? He's looking for man for the answer. He held man responsible. The result of Adam's passivity was that, was that the curse of sin fell on all of humanity. The serpent was cursed. There was a curse on the ground that man was commanded to till. And there was a curse on man and woman. Why? Watch this now. Because of man's disobedience. And here's what I believe in this passage. I believe that it's, it's the curse on man and woman that God wants to redeem. So why is it that, that I believe that Paul doesn't want a woman to serve in the role of the elder? Because I believe he, just like God, longs to see men and women restored to their creative order. In the gospel and in the church, God is restoring his creative order and overcoming the curse of sin in this world. See, this is the call for men. It's our call as men to experience redemption through the challenges of leading the church. It's our call to till the difficult ground that's required in leadership. And at the same time, rediscovering on a personal level once again what it means to be responsible to lead and not be passive. And so it's in and through the church that God is calling men to quit being passive and to step up and lead. And so I want to say again, this text, women, this is not putting women down. It's a call for men to step up. 
See, when the scripture says that the woman wasn't dece- the woman was deceived and not the man, it's not a put down for women. It's not a knock against women. It's a call to men to step into their God-given authority and responsibility as the protectors of our women and our families, of the guardians of Scripture and of the church. So I believe this brings us full circle into our text today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. This passage literally means that he must be a one-woman man. That he has to only have eyes for his wife and his wife alone. And so whether he's elder, he's an elder and this elder is single or he's married, he has, he's, he's responsible just like any other follower of Jesus Christ, but especially those in the role of leadership to live a, a sexually pure life. And if the elder is married, it means that he must be faithful to his wife and his wife alone, loving, nurturing, and protecting his wife. And this passage doesn't prohibit a man from being an elder if he's been married before. That's that's not what it says. This text literally means a one-woman man, dedicated and devoted to one woman. So this verse calls for an elder to love his wife, to be responsible to lead and to teach and to nurture his wife in the ways of God. Again, restoring back to the original order what God has called men to do and be responsible for. So when the passage says, what does it mean to be above reproach? what does it mean to be above reproach? It's saying that a, that a man needs to be blameless. A man in this office needs to be blameless. Needs to be blameless. And I saved above reproach for last because I believe that this is the overarching principle that governs all of the rest of the qualifications of an elder. It literally means, above reproach literally means that there is nothing to grasp. That there's nothing to take hold of. That there must be nothing in the life of an elder who's leading the church that Satan or anyone else in the world can grab a hold of and take hold of. Nothing that can be used to criticize the church and the leadership in the church. Lance, you can bring the team up. Above reproach doesn't mean that a man has to be perfect. As a matter of fact, I'd say this, that there's no person living that is living a perfectly sinless life. There's only one person that's lived a perfectly sinless life, and and it certainly isn't me or any of the elder elders in this church. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. And so it doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean that our elder candidates have to be perfect. What it means is that each one of them needs to strive to be blameless in their character, 
It means that to the best of their knowledge, there are no unresolved sin issues in their life. That every single issue that could be an issue has been dealt with between them and God and the person in which the issue might be with. So that Satan has nothing to take a hold on. So today, church, as part of your responsibility, you've been given a card. And on this card, you have the opportunity to respond with any concerns that you might have about any of the candidates or affirmation that you might have for any of the candidates. And it's essential for us to have this information because we want to present to this church men that are the husbands of one wife, one woman man, and men who live lives above reproach. And so this is your opportunity to give us feedback and be part of that process. At the close of the service, I've said before, and I'm going to say it again, at the close of the service, I want you to take time, if you're a member of this church family, I want you to take time to fill out that card. And there'll be members of, this, of the service team back in the back who want to collect that card from you today. We want to honor God in this process, and we want to honor you. It's my desire today, as I unpack this passage of Scripture, leading into what we're going to talk about next and the qualifications of an elder as we deep, dive deeper into this passage, my desire to do two things. To shine a light on the qualifications and the role of the elder, but to also say that there is no insignificant role in the body of Christ. That our women in our church have a, as a significant role in leading in the church as our men. There's no hierarchical structure. And in the sight of God, we are created equal. Scripture tells us there's, there's no Jew no Gentile, no bond, no free, no male, no female. And so in this process, as we go through this process of selecting leaders, I want you to know, if you're a woman in this house, that God has called you to lead too. And today I just want to point out the importance. I want to make sure I point out the importance and the significance of the role that you play, not only in this church, but in the lives of those in your home. Will you stand with me? It's my prayer, Lord, that that today what I've done is I've bridged the gap between the gap between the thinking of of what a woman's role is in the church and what a man's role in this is in the church. Lord, I pray that what, what's taken away from this message today is that you created us to be one. I pray, Lord, that, that what you've done with the words that have been spoken here is, is you've called us, Lord, to move further into the process of, of, of putting together a church government that will lead us into the future, everyone being considered valuable in the process, both men and women. And Lord, I pray in the days ahead 
that you give us crystal clarity of what that looks like so that we can live in deference with each other, honoring one another, treating each other as family that we love. I pray these things in Jesus' name.